Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Morning, Trish. I've just had a confusing conversation with my eldest boyfriend. Oh, your eldest daughter's boyfriend, not your eldest boyfriend. (laughs) Lovely young man. Lovely young man in our kitchen. He just started chatting to me about... Toby Hmm. I'm asking how young Patrick is and he starts talking to me about Toby and says Toby's not very well and he may have had cancer Um, and I display extreme sympathy because at this point I say well he's very young to have had I'm assuming Toby's Patrick's brother same age yes yes (laughs) similar age yeah and I say, how awful for you. He, you know, he said, oh, he's had all the tests. And uh, I say, where was the cancer? Just out of interest. Mm. And um, he says, bum. I'm keeping it all in. Thinking, yes. Very casual way of dropping that your brother Something. might have yes. in the family. And as he's pottering about making a cup of tea, smiling. Um, and then my daughter comes in and Patrick goes out to get something. And she looks at me and says, why, why are you talking to Patrick about Toby the dog and his bum cancer. (laughs) What's Toby the dog's bum cancer got to do with you? And you, you then the penny dropped. I went the whole conversation thinking, yeah, I went through all the emotions. Okay, okay. I was ready to ring his mum. I was doing the whole thing. Anyway, let me tell you, Toby the dog bum cancer, all fine. Oh, it was a false alarm. False alarm. Oh, phew. Thank goodness for that. False alarm. So that's my morning. That's Trish. a bit um, sort of brain fog meets young person not being able to communicate properly situation, isn't it? Yeah, neither yeah. of us really saying, no. both of us tiptoeing around. <laughs> oh dear, anyway. got a laugh. Hello. Hello. Welcome to Postcards from Midlife. I'm Trish Halpin. And I'm Lorraine Candy, and we're on a mission to help you make the most of your magnificent midlife. We'll be tackling everything from mind and body wellness to HRT and your sex drive. Trish and I are here to help you have a stylish second act and answer all your midlife questions on fashion, beauty, careers, relationships, family, and as always, the challenges and joys of parenting teens. Look what I've bought, especially for you, Lorraine. Oh, young Trish, hobnobs, my favourite. <laughs> you do love me after all. I do. Of course I do. I think I should explain if you could just keep that rustling down. as you're tra- I just have one. <laughs> trying to open them now, aren't you? Um, we're recording this episode together in my kitchen, aren't we? And usually we on opposite sides of London, miles away from each other with just our tiny little faces on our computer screens to talk to. You are much... Um bigger in real life I know they always say celebrities are smaller in real life but I've only seen you small for a while so (laughs) I have come south with my passport from Mm. north to south and you know what I'm most scared of on this Mm. morning together don't you I I know I know what's coming yeah I'm gonna meet Margot yes dratted cat the cat I'm keeping an eye out anyway we've been doing a photo shoot haven't we for a really Mm. exciting project that we're going to be launching soon and I can't wait to tell you all about that 
I can see that you're excited because you've put your hobnob down, yes. haven't you? <laughs> I'm waiting for my cup of tea, quite yes. frankly. Well, exactly. Well, I was going to say, I wouldn't leave it too long as a, a teenager or a Labrador is bound to sweep by and, and sort of pilfer the packet or snatch snatch the biscuit if you're not careful. But um, talking of hobnobs, we've been hobnobbing round town in the last week, haven't we? I think we should start with your triumphant, can I say, judging of the Women's Prize for Fiction. I love the link there, hobnobbing <laughs> around town. Exactly. That's an actual verb now. Yes, I was out and about. Um, I'm one of the five judges of the Women's Prize for Fiction. Amazing shortlist, amazing shortlist, mm. which we've talked about on the programme before and that the details are on our Facebook group. But it was so difficult to try and oh, pick a winner. I can't imagine the shortlist was incredible. Mm. Gosh, um, but we did pick a winner. Um, there was an amazing garden party in Bedford Square in mm. central London. And Kate Moss, who's a guest on the show uh, last year, year before, I Kate think. Moss, the author. Wonderful. And, yep, author. founder yeah, she, of the Women's Prize. Mm. Yes, 30 years, founder of the Women's Prize. Anyway, we announced the winner, which is The Book of Form and Emptiness by Ruth Azeki. And honestly, it's one of the most unusual books I've ever read. I think it's one of those books that you can take away and totally immerse yourself in so the book is the narrator as well mm. as Benny the little boy preteen she's 14 I think in the book whose dad dies whose mum becomes a hoarder and I mean it's just a it's really really laugh out loud funny b it makes you question all bits of life and what you mm-hmm. think about things and it's a great big chunky read but it's massively accessible as well and when she won Ruth who's a Zen Buddhist monk mm. um, as well as a lecturer uh, in uh, America she's a, a lecturer out there uh, women's writing she just gave the speech of speeches didn't mm. she about she how did. women support yeah. each other and the women that she was nurturing now that were winning prizes for their writing and she, she was just it was so heartwarming and so supportive of other women and then she said I never win anything didn't she yes exactly she <laughs> I mean did. yeah she was amazing I was very impressed pressed with her she yeah. and, and you know what? I've read all of the books on the shortlist apart from that one and I got it in my goodie bag on the way out which I was I mean my lucky day right Right. I know you are lucky. Well, you're, I feel I feel jealous that you're about to start it because I've yes. read it twice now. So, oh, oh brilliant! I have anyway. that joy to come. Fantastic. Wasn't just me hobnobbing, was it, Trish? Mm. You were um, you were in the corridors of power. Oh, <laughs> it was exactly popped into Parliament as you as do, you do yeah. on a Monday evening um, this week, last week, at the invitation of Sir Lindsay Hoyle, no less, the Speaker of the House, and he was hosting a reception to mark his signing of the Wellbeing of Women Workplace Menopause Pledge. We had the chair of the charity, didn't we, Dame Leslie Regan, on the show last year, who is just an amazing woman forced to be reckoned with and um, when they launched the initiative and the, the, the idea behind it isn't it is to get businesses to commit to having menopause policies in place and giving proactive support for women going through it and a thousand companies have signed up to it so far which is fantastic news I know it's absolutely extraordinary and it's good and I think there was there's always this fear isn't there a little bit that if we talk about things that are causing us issues in the workplace that somehow means that we are less viable less valuable mm. it will kind of but that's actually not true if we talk about it we can be a lot more valuable 
sustainable because mm. we can work harder and enjoy our jobs more. Did you, who else did you rub your shoulder pads? Oh, with? there was some shoulder pad rubbing going on. So we were in this amazing room with these beautiful, enormous paintings of all these old blokes in wigs who were obviously the previous speakers of the house. And one, only one, Betty Boothroyd, obviously painting yes. of her, the only female speaker of the house. But there were lots of the menopause warriors, as we call them, and they call yes. us as well. There was Carolyn Harris, MP. All Carolyn, our guests. All our guests. <laughs> <laughs> Carolyn Harris, MP, Jane Leslie, Caroline, Caroline Noakes, MP as well, who's been really supportive of this. Lisa Snowden, Penny Lancaster, Mariella Frostrop. Um, and yeah, I mean, as I've said, we're really supportive of this initiative. And if any listeners would like to get their workplaces involved, they can find out more at wellbeingofwomen.org.uk. Now, is it time to tell everybody who we have as our special guest on the show? I'm going to put my hobnob down. <laughs> want to be chewing away because my excitement levels are peaking i'm giddy mm. once again an icon of television one of my journalistic icons actually she was the youngest ever bbc news reporter we have mm-hmm. got today the one and only fern britain <laughs> very excited she's been on our screens for the best part of four decades and i probably don't need to remind anyone that fern is a journalist tv presenter and actor she is also a best-selling author she's written nine best-selling books and they are like mega best-selling mm. millions sold and her new book the good servant is her 10th book i'm just on my second book aren't i Trish? <laughs> Oh my God, it's going to be about painful. 910 when mm. I finish that. And God <laughs> knows how she's written nine and done all the other things that she's uh, done as well. She's going to be telling us about her menopause and midlife story and also the new life that she has created post-divorce. Um, and later in How to Win at Midlife, I've been talking to therapist Donna Lancaster about emotional healing and a nine-step process she's developed called The Bridge to transform hurt and heartbreak into deep healing and wholehearted living. I'm very excited about hearing you talk about this because you've been been—you've basically been talking about it all <laughs> week, so I can't wait to read that yes. book. I'm not, I'm a little bit more apprehensive about the little bit at the end of the show, The yes. Nostalgia Noodle, where yes. I have to guess the year and... Because there are numbers in it in this situation, I'm I'm never very good at it. Mm. So you'd need to be nice to me and allow me to have another cup of tea with my hobnob. Okay, well I do have to be nicer to you today, don't I? Because you're sitting next to me. Yes. We don't want things to get violent. No. It's time to welcome a broadcasting legend to the Postcards from Midlife sofa, a woman who has been on our screens for more than 42 years, and I wouldn't be exaggerating if I called her a national treasure. Journalist, best-selling author, presenter and actor Fern Britton began her career on local telly in the West Country before becoming TV royalty and landing primetime slots on This Morning and Ready, Steady, Cook, as well as hosting her own show, Fern Britton Meets. She has written nine best-selling books, starred in Calendar Girls the Musical, appeared on Strictly Come Dancing with Artem and won numerous telly awards. Fern is here to talk to us about her 10th novel, The Good Servant, which came out two weeks ago to rave reviews and is already a bestseller, uh, pre-order bestseller. We'll be chatting about her high-flying job and family life. Fern, 64, is a mum of four, including twin sons, now 28, which she conceived after four rounds of IVF. Two years ago, she parted from her second husband, Phil Vickery, after 20 years of marriage and relocated to her beloved Cornwall with daughters Grace, 25, and Winnie, 20. We'll be asking Fern for advice and guidance on new starts, dealing with big change and family transitions, and her attitude to staying relevant in such a high-profile career. 
Welcome to Postcards from Midlife Firm. Thank you very much. I've actually picked you my first sweet peas. Oh, Oh, look at that. Now, I'm going to start. Well, you know I'm Cornish and I grew up in Cornwall. So I'm going to ask about your life in Cornwall because after after this manic career I've had for 30 years, my dream is to escape back home. How have you found it being back in Cornwall? It was the best decision I ever took. Cornwall is just a place where you can breathe no one hassles you but it is just glorious I I was working in London and Oxford in the last couple of days and when I got home on the train last night I jumped in the car went straight to the beach tide was in warm evening so seven o'clock yesterday evening and I got in the sea but it was glorious last night really lovely and you're in your 60s now we're we're both in our 50s and you described your 50s as a repowering time because obviously your kids were leaving home you had more space and time to write and we found this as well you don't you're not bothered about pleasing everyone all the time tell us what the 60s are going to be like because we're going to be heading into that (laughs) it's good it's a little bit more distilled even than the feeling Mm -hmm. in the 50s however you do have to face the fact that I mean I'm 65 next month and suddenly I got a bit of arthritis in my knee and I've got arthritis in my shoulder and I start to feel my age and I have to keep going no 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 I'm finding it a bit difficult sometimes to get off very squashy sofas Um, you know, you just have to tell yourself it's all good. I was planning my 70th birthday party the other day and a girlfriend said to me, why didn't you just do that this year? <laughs> but I want to have a, a 70s night. So lots of 70s music, real old disco diva stuff, fish and chips for everybody and bottles of beer. I think that'll be all right, don't you? Perfect. I'm already Perfect. looking forward to it. Yeah. <laughs> Now, you've had an extraordinarily successful career in, in many fields, not just in being on our small screens. You've been a kind of calm face in our listeners' lives um, for many, many years. But what did you enjoy most when you look back and what did you enjoy least, perhaps? I think the most enjoyable thing of looking back is actually being able to remember everything because life goes so quickly, doesn't it, for anybody yeah. in the middle of a career and work, bringing up a small family and, and, and. You can't enjoy the moments that are highlights. And I look back now, I've got a load of stuff. When I moved down here, an awful lot of kind of history of mine came with it, thousands of boxes and everything else. So I'm going through the boxes right now and finding all sorts of little clippings from magazines. Got a whole box full of VHS tapes, which date from 1980 onwards. Loads of gorgeous photographs, memories of things on the studio, a couple of scripts from things. And you think, oh, yes, I did do that. And it's really rather lovely to sit back and think, I was quite successful, really. But at the time, you don't know that, do you? You really don't. When you're in it, you you definitely don't. But you're still presenting on TV. You've been most recently doing the Watercolour Challenge on Channel 5. Had you thought about how your screen life might play out as you got older? Because we know that a lot of industries aren't the most friendly to women as they get older. I never had a plan. I started in 1980 when I was 22, blundered my way through the next 40 years, literally. I've never wanted to follow a map. I'm not even very good at sat-nav, you know, (laughs) but um, but I've never wanted to follow a map in my life. Right, when I'm 30, I'm going to achieve that. And when I'm 40, I'm going to be doing that. It didn't really happen that way. I was just enjoying what I was doing and very lucky to keep being given stuff I liked. And if I didn't like it, I just stopped doing it. I went a couple of times from a good job 
to nothing because I wasn't really enjoying it anymore. But then something always came up. And then when I left this morning, I had nothing to go to, but books started to come to me. And I was very frightened. I mean, writing a novel as a journalist, I can write a few hundred words, Mm. a couple of thousand maybe. And then they say, here's a book. I say, how long is a book? They say 100,000 words. Oh, and uh, at the beginning, that was quite terrifying. Now I'm quite good at chucking out the, the thousands. Yes. And because I'm really thinking about it now and I, I feel comfortable in it, not as nervous. It's taken me 11 books to be able to say to people quite comfortably, I'm a writer, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is crazy. Before I was going, oh, yes, well, I write a bit. Mm-hmm. Oh, what do you write? Oh, you wouldn't like it. You know, they're bestsellers. They're massively popular for us. Yes, but even that, you know, in my mind, imposter syndrome, in my mind is, oh, it's all been a mistake. They don't really know. <laughs> the last book, Daughters of Cornwall, that actually went straight into number one and was there for three or four weeks. I began to be able to feel it, feeling a bit of a glow. Owning your success fern you have to do Is that, that the phrase? surely mm-hmm. and stopping the negating thoughts i'm so easily negated somebody just has to say one thing and i think yeah that's right i'm crap actually yeah no you're right i'm stupid and you think no i'm not i'm not mm-hmm. so i'm starting to believe that a i can write a book and b perhaps i'm not dim after all <laughs> Well, that brings me to my next question, because I know it's part of your mindset. It's part of mine as well. Neither of us went to university. For me, coming from where I came from and seeing you 10 years ahead of me, and I thought, well, Fern can do it. Then maybe I'll be able to be a journalist as well. She seems to be doing brilliantly. So I've quite closely followed your career. Um, You know, you've been a, a real kind of role model. So but throughout it, you faced quite a bit of sexism I'm can imagining there was a time when one of your male co-presenters was famously paid more than you and then when you were pregnant with Winnie at 44 your fourth child you were told that you'd lose the this morning role if you weren't back on screen immediately after you'd given birth that's very stressful but you also went back to them didn't you and said what about if we do it this way I mean I, it's, I think it'd be great for our listeners to hear that story so it was the time when a couple of years before Richard Judy had left very suddenly left the program and I was doing Fridays with John Leslie and all of a sudden John and I were the two main presenters and we did we did all right we got on very well and I liked him very much and we did two years together and then I found myself pregnant with Winnie so there I was getting plumper and plumper and more and more pregnant before I actually could say oh actually I'm pregnant and I could wear that big tent again (laughs) and the boss yeah he said to me when are you having this baby and I said well in beginning of September she's due and he said right well you can come straight back and I said well I really can't because I'm 44 I know it's going to be a cesarean because um my twin boys one was upside down and one was back to front so that was a cesarean Grace my next lovely daughter she started well when I got to hospital and then stopped so she was caesared once you've had two you know you're going to have to have them after that so I knew she was going to be seized. And this guy said, oh, my wife had a cesarean. She was absolutely fine. She drove the car and blah, blah, blah. Oh and I said, gosh. how old is she? And she was about 30. I'm more than 10 years older than her. And I will have four children. So I don't think I can come back. And he said, well, if you don't come back, there'll be no job for you. Outrageous. Uh, he did say that after I'd had her, because then the program was going a bit skew whiff. And um, he rang me up and he said, you know, you've got to come back. And I said, well, I can't because 
I've only just had her. She's six weeks old and, you know, your body is doing all the things that you're expecting it to. Plus you've all, not only have you got to have, um, you know, a lot of breast milk leaks, there are other bits of you that are still mm-hmm. leaking, you know, all of that stuff, <laughs> <laughs> the undercarriage. And he said, well, if you don't come back, there's, there's nothing for you. And I went, okay, well, and then within a couple of weeks, he did say, well, supposing we got a nanny and we got you sorted out and we had a babysitter for you. Because I said, I can't leave her at home because I'm feeding her and I'm going to continue to feed her. And I did for the next year. So it happened. And it wasn't exactly a nanny looking after the after her because that would have been too expensive. But the uh, the green room hostess, lovely oh. woman, Jan, not only was she juggling all the guests in and out of the show and making toast and tea for everybody. She's got baby she, Winnie. She looked after Winnie. And, and it, I mean, it, it did work. I was exhausted getting up early in the morning to get to work, changing, you know, getting Winnie up and ready and in the car and feed her in the car while I'm reading my notes and writing the interviews up. And then when you're on air, so funny, I, in talkback, I used to get someone going, <clears throat> Fern, and then you can't say anything because I'm in the middle of an interview. Just nod your head. Is the cow pole in the <laughs> and that kind of stuff? Are there fresh nipples in the dressing room? All that kind of stuff. It was a hilarious. And I look back on that with a certainly a, a, a huge amount of pride, but also confusion that I managed to do it. <laughs> Very stressful, though, no? It's a kind of, you know, it must take a huge toll on your kind of immune system, your nervous system. Like I've got four kids, Trisha's yeah. got twins. We've all... Yeah done these mad things it's only when you get to this age you look back and think how the hell did I do that how did we have the strength to do Mm. it absolutely and I don't know except women are just bloody tough it was fascinating first of all just to hear a little bit of the behind the scenes stuff that goes on because obviously it's all so glossy and smooth when you watch it on screen but it's all this kind of stuff going on in the background and equally I mean working with colleagues on air you work with some of the biggest male names in tv like Philip Schofield Bradley Walsh Matthew Kelly Frank Boff, Des Lynham, even Ronnie Corbett. I mean, what a list. But, you know, that probably presents its own challenges, doesn't it? When you're working with huge personalities, you're having to maybe work around them and, and navigate that dynamic and that relationship. How did you find that? Um, I didn't even address it, actually. There's an awful lot to, that you you can engage with and get yourself anxious for no reason at all. So I would just think, no, I have, I I know who I am and what I'm doing and I know how to do this job. And um, the best thing is just to be nice and make it easy and not panicky. And I've always said this, that there, there was, I heard once from somebody, a woman who said, never look as if you are nervous because generally in those days, the program would have been run by men and there would be men in the studio. And if you look a little bit nervous or anxious about something or need a question answered, they'll immediately think you are panicking. You're obviously hysterical. <laughs> and then it would be handed to the man. All those men I worked with and Eamon Holmes and all sorts of lovely people, uh, some were better than others. Eamon's a dream. Frank Boff was difficult. Should I tell you a rude story? Yes. So Frank, and I was, I told people this story before he died, so I'm not speaking ill of, just because he's not with us anymore. When I joined Breakfast Time in 1982, 83, something like that, I was either the newsreader or the presenter with Frank. So I was the stand-in. Whenever anyone was, Selena was off or anybody was off, I would stand in. So I would present the programme with Frank. He didn't like me at all, really. He's He wasn't exactly friendly uncle 
that he made out. So when I first joined the programme, I was taken out to lunch by the whole team, you know, lovely restaurant in London. And we got to the bit where it was, we'd had pudding and everyone was lighting up a fag, you know, because that's what he did. And um, he was sitting next to me and he leant back in his chair and looked at me and he said, well, I'll wonder how long it'll be before I'm having an affair with you. Because I do have a very big cock. <laughs> That's astounding, isn't oh it? My gosh. I'll be the judge of that, you want to say to that, don't well, you? Well, yes, but uh, uh, on hearsay, <laughs> apparently he was accurate on that point. But anyway, he hated me by the end. He really disliked me. And I had a, quite a rough time on that programme. But it does, toughens you up, you know. Yeah. It really does toughen you up. But it's amazing what you pull yourself through. And it's that that you learn so much about yourself and what strength you have. Now, something that we have in common is that we both have twins. Mine are boy-girl twins, but we both had IVF to get to that stage. And it's it's not the easiest of processes, is it? I had about four rounds, I think. Yes, and- I had Rounds. Did you have four rounds, right, to, to have your boys Jack and Harry as a roller coaster? But you suffered from postnatal depression, which isn't something that I experienced after Grace. Is that right? Well, actually, it was after the boys and a bit after Grace as well. Yes, yes. Um, and and, and you had a marriage breakdown. And so you really went through the mill, didn't you, in your kind of, what, late 30s, early 40s? Yeah, I had the boys when I was 37 and then Grace when I was 40 and when I was 44. Mm. Late starter. So anyone uh, going through a kind of really tumultuous tumultuous time like this whether it's a divorce or just not managing with the kids and everything what kind of advice would you have for anybody listening you've got to go and have a long chat to yourself because you're not superwoman and uh you're frightened that people are going to think you're failing you really must speak about it and by the time I was actually sobbing (laughs) about six months and my mum said you're going to have to ring the doctor I said I'm not doing that she rang the doctor the doctor rang me to say, you need to come in. I went, oh, no, that was just my mother. No, I'm fine. I'm fine. She's just worrying. Then I next, the next thing I knew was the nurse was knocking on the front door saying, oh. you're really not fine. Mm-hmm. And then I was in a mess. Postnatal depression is depression just having to be postnatal. Yeah. But it will bring a depression on. So if you have any of that kind of symptoms going ahead, the internal dialogue is too noisy. You're thinking of mad things. I mean, there was a point when... I had so little time in the day juggling the twins. I thought, right, what I'm going to have to do is when they got to bed, I thought I will have a bath, clean my teeth, put my day clothes on and get into bed. So then I'll sleep in my clothes and I'll wake up and I'll be there. And it's madness, even at the time you know it, but you think Mm -hmm. this is a great idea. So if you have any of those things... You yeah. do need to talk to the doctor. And to, is your, your uh, mental health happy now? Have you because you've you've worked on it for, for many years, haven't you? Yes. You've had therapy. So how do you feel now mentally? Every week I speak to my therapist. Yes, it's money going out, but I don't very often get my hair done. And I don't, <laughs> I don't very often like, you, you, know, think you have to justify it first. <laughs> no, no, but you know, everybody now is thinking, turn the lights out and I mustn't drive the car. And so, but this mm. for me is an essential. I've been talking to her now for nearly 10 years every week. It just is such a useful filter. You're not upsetting those people nearest and dearest when you say the awful things that you want to say about them or about yourself or about life. It's really good. And it 
it straightens the wheel when mm-hmm. you're about to go into the mm-hmm. ditch. And did you think that's helped you have an amicable divorce? Because when we've sort of read your interviews you've given, it does sound like you and Phil had a very amicable separation. Yes, it was. It, it took a little while. It's only in the last mm, couple of months that everything was sorted out. Mm-hmm. But yes, it was amicable. And that does help a lot. We're not constantly in touch with each other. Not at the moment, because it's still a bit, he's settling into his new life, I'm settling into mine. But, you know, we have Winnie between us. And so there's that great connection. And the same with my first husband and my my three children. We are responsible for our own happiness. Mm-hmm. No one else is responsible for it at all. You just have to get on, don't you? I mean, that's... Yeah. One foot after another, just head down one foot after another. Now, can we talk about body image? Because there was a fern Britain headline last week in the Zolio Express because you went on Lorraine, lovely Lorraine Kelly, you went on her show and you said that you look like, a. this is the quote, a big fat green olive on legs or live on air. Now, over the years, obviously, you've talked a lot about body image. So you, you say you've been between, it's in your book, you've been between a size 12 and a size 22 but there has been in the media and around you almost constant focus on what you look like and and what you weigh so if other women are now at this stage of life looking at their body and disliking it and what is your advice to them what have you learned from what you've been through some of those headlines were really unpleasant and unkind and I don't think they would happen now gosh well we're all so different aren't we I know that when I had the gastric band I did it for myself and for no other reason. And because I wanted to be fit and healthy for the children because they were still so young. I'd only got put a lot of weight on really after Winnie. It was about six or seven years getting larger and larger and larger. And then I tried all sorts of things, but sometimes it isn't your inability to stick to a diet that is the problem. Some people, they're really doing good research into this. Some people Mm -hmm. just put weight on no matter what they do and so I had the gastric band purely for myself and I still will say there was absolutely no requirement for anyone to have a personal private medical thing to tell the world and the only way the newspapers found out was because my phone was hacked and hacked for a long time the explosion of the newspapers and two years of being followed constantly by PAPS was horrendous and something I really didn't deserve. And then it impinged on my work. And I think people around me at work were getting a bit fed up. I was getting attention. I clearly was distracted by it as well. ITV were not really that helpful. When the story first broke, I went into work that next day, Monday, the press office said to me, do you want us to come and talk to you about it? I said, no, it could be fine. I'll be fine. The next day, I got a phone call from the ITV boss saying to me, right, tomorrow you have to say, in hindsight, you realise you should have told everybody that you'd had a gastric band. Outrageous. And I said, oh, you're asking me to apologise. And he said, I'm being very careful not to use that word. And I said, no, I'm not going to stuff that. And he took me off air for a few days. So there was then a lot of newspaper stuff saying that I was clearly having a nervous breakdown, obviously. Um, But I wasn't. I was furious. I was reinstated after a few days. But it was not right. It began to erode at relationships with people I was working with, put it that way. (laughs) And then one day, if something happened, I resigned there and then. Mm -hmm. And nobody asked me to stay or reconsider. It was like, right. 
who's coming in next? Gosh. It's apologising for something that you shouldn't even be in the public domain. I know. But that was life then. I mean, that's 14 years ago. You sound such a calm, measured, thoughtful person, but obviously you were furious, you were angry. And does the the rage and the anger ever come out? And I'm thinking particularly because obviously we talk a lot about menopause and perimenopause on this podcast. And one of the symptoms, certainly we found it, Rage. rage and anger. Did you find that? It took a long time to find the rage and the anger because life was sort of hurtling along and there were all sorts of things going on in my life. And I'm very good at bearing it all, accepting things and smiling, getting on with it. That's one thing therapy has taught me. She really made me go, that must make you angry. I went, no, no. I mean, lots of things. Mm -hmm. Didn't that make you angry? No, no, no. But now my anger is at boiling point and (laughs) hot about all sorts of things. (laughs) Yes. And did you go through perimenopause symptoms? Talk us through that journey, because in retrospect, because you are, you did take HIT. Yes, I'm still taking it. Well, my life was a bit of a turmoil at that time anyway. I was about 47, 48. All these things were bubbling up in my mind. And I went to have a blood test and whatever the numbers were, you know, you're supposed to have 300 or something. And I had two. So um, I was put immediately on HRT. I hadn't even realized it was there, but the brain fog lifted mm-hmm. and the brain fog was really uh, uh, debilitating. And I didn't even notice it was there, you know, and you suddenly feel so much better in the head. So that was useful. Got a bit more energy back. It's been good ever since. I still have the sweating, really horrible. Well, the from, night sweats were particularly bad. Night sweats, day sweats from, from May to October, Anyway, when it's damp air like this, warm and damp, I just absolutely sweat, drip. If I'm making the bed, I'm dripping. It's running off my nose. And then around midday, thankfully, (laughs) it kind of stops. So, and then it's all right again till bedtime. Crazy. Was it taboo then to talk about it? Because I think really only women have only been able to talk about this in the last two years, really. Mm, Yes, it wasn't really talked about. Talked to my mum and she said, oh, well, it wasn't too bad for me. And once I got on the HRT and told my mum and she was, it was just like kind of, and because it's for that generation it was and this is what happens so I was very grateful I had a fantastic GP at the time I've had a couple of fantastic GPs and then I had a hysterectomy five six years ago because of uh, enormous fibroids that was all good and then you you put onto a different HRT because you've got nothing the argo has gone there's no (laughs) nothing you know helping you so and it's been wonderful well it's great to hear that you've had such fantastic support through all of your female related health issues around postnatal depression and uh, menopause I think we should talk about the book Fern because this is a brilliant book I'm holding it up here um The Good Servant now this is a fascinating one and very timely obviously because we are I mean we're all obsessed with the queen anyway but this is a, a sort of fictionalized story of a, a factual real life situation. Do you want to maybe just explain what, it's yes, and what it's, inspired you? Yeah, it, it's taken me a couple of years to write it because I've done an awful lot of research. Mm-hmm. So the historical part of it is as accurate as I can make it. The fictionalized bits are conversations and events because there's no record of those things. But it is the story of Marion Crawford, who in 1932, at the age of only 22, She became the governess to Princess Elizabeth and Princess Margaret, the Duke and Duchess of York, who later became George VI and the Queen, uh, our Queen Mum, spotted Crawford at a 
friend's relative's house and nabbed her. I <laughs> thought she was rather young and lovely and be very good for these young princesses. And she was really good. She taught them everything that she could think of, not just academically, but because the, the king and the queen at the time, they, they thought that Elizabeth and Margaret, they'd never go to school. They would, did not want them to mm. go to school. They wanted them in their lives because they loved them so much. They didn't want to lose them to education. Crawfy, as they called Marion Crawford, had quite a battle on her hands making the hours in the day to teach the girls because they go oh no they must have the afternoons off darling because they need to have fresh air oh well no we've got to cancel today because I want to take them out for the day so you know difficult Mm -hmm. but she steered our queen now through the abdication therefore knowing that she was going to the realization you know this little girl 11 12 was going to be queen through the war and all the dangers that that brought right up until the queen our queen, who was still Princess Elizabeth, had married Prince Philip and had had Prince Charles. So she was there for 17 years of her life. She gave up so much of her life for them because she adored them. She loved them. Her loyalty was second to none. She had a boyfriend and he proposed to her 14 years before she actually got married because the queen kept saying to her, oh, no, you can't get married, darling, because the girls would miss you. No, 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 we need you. 39, she did marry her husband just a couple of months before the Queen married Prince Philip. Crawford, she finds herself in a bit of a scan- scandal. She gets put into a situation, doesn't she? And there's a there's scandal around it. But I think we should let the readers discover oh, okay. that. Yes. I think because it's right. such... Right. I yeah. couldn't believe that this was going to happen. So I think it's a, it's, a, it's a fantastic story and a brilliant read. And I would say a fabulous summer read. And have you got something lined up next? Have you got What's next? Uh, What's next? I'm shooting three My Cornwall documentaries for Channel 5 in September, and uh, they'll probably be for the spring. And I'm working on the new book now. So you're busy. You're very, very busy, aren't you? You lost your mum and dad in the last two years as well. Three years, yeah. Yeah. So it was a very difficult time. So I lost my mum first, and then my marriage, and a pussycat, and then my dad. So, uh, and, and the home that I had, not, not that I lost it, but, you know, I, my choice was to come here. And uh, I still am not quite unpacked. <laughs> still get my house in order. But I've been working so much, uh, it's, it's quite hard. Oh, well, thank you so much for taking the time to come and talk to us. And I think if, if you love the crown and things like that, you're gonna, people are going to love the good servant. Um, and it's already gone, it's a pre-order, it's gone into the top 10, hasn't it? Yeah, number nine. So that's good. Oh, brilliant. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it perhaps going up a bit because I'm very proud of this book. I worked very hard on it. And I can actually say I am proud of this book. It is good. Oh, brilliant. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Now, 
Now, for anyone who is experiencing or has experienced loss, grief and heartbreak, this week's How to Win at Midlife is for you. I've been speaking to the coach and therapist Donna Lancaster, whose new book, The Bridge, A Nine-Step Crossing into Authentic and Wholehearted Living, is out on 7th of July. I'm intrigued by this. I'm glad I'm in your kitchen to discuss Mm -hmm. it, Trish, Um, because normally when people talk about grief and heartbreak, we think of that in terms of those massive life events, Mm. you know, cancer, death, marriage, breakups. But actually, we experience hurt and loss in many different ways all the time, don't we, every day? Yeah, we do. And often our reaction is that we just have to keep thinking positively, focus on looking forwards, keep on keeping on, when actually what we need to do is learn a kind and gentle and effective way to process emotional pain. And we were not really, I think Gen X particularly, we've got such an endure it mindset. We're not really taught how to express our emotions healthily, I don't think, or specifically mm. taught, or how to kind of heal and get over them. Mm. It's not, you know, it's hard to find coping mechanisms. What does Donna suggest? What are these nine steps? Yes, you have well, of? in this book, obviously there are nine chapters and each chapter is a different kind of process or a stepping stone because she kind of uses the bridge as this analogy of moving from one place to another and that each of these nine steps are like stepping stones across the bridge. And there's guided exercises in each chapter. There's summaries of key ideas and uh, questions to Mm. reflect on in each chapter from stage two. So, and she says, you need to almost give it two weeks between completing each of these two chapters to kind of really sort of get through this kind of healing process. And I mean, obviously, depending on uh, your personal circumstances, it could be a painful journey, or it could just be a really good thing to do in midlife to just kind of see where you are and how you're feeling about past events and the now and future and she sort of said to me that this this sentence which really sort of struck a nerve she said the pain of healing is temporary but the impact of ignored pain can last a lifetime so unsurprisingly the first chapter it's called heartbreak and tears how and why we get hurt and you have to map losses and heartbreaks in a timeline from from your childhood which I think is a, is a really interesting place to start and really kind of gets you thinking and then obviously I'm not going to go through all the nine steps there's so many good ones step four forgiveness and compassion the healing power of an apology how to make one receive one and forgiving ourselves sounds very good true self-love how to become your own best friend and deal with inner critics you know we we all have that we've talked about that quite a lot developing power and resilience setting boundaries saying no that kind of thing and then it just you so once you've moved through these you then get to sort of the rebirth of your true self and then the spiritual dimension deepening into life which is is wow. kind of where you end what a journey this is a well midlife is a bridge isn't it between mm. act one and act two it's a very specific to us what were you looking at then without being too personal trip well I suppose well, I did do a slightly mini, mini therapy session with Donna because obviously she's a therapist uh, you know a counsellor and, and she's as, as a lot of these people are got this lovely listening and yes. calm energy about her and actually learning to listen is kind of one of the things you have to kind of go through in the book and I obviously talked to her to her about the whole emptiness thing which I'm about to face ah. you're about to face and she talked about as well about anticipatory grief and how you have to sort of look at it in terms of losing and gains which is you know we know this is coming right or if you have an elderly parent who you think well they're not going to be around for longer and you're anticipating this grief and you don't know how to, to 
to deal with that yeah. or process that. And she sort of, you know, she just had, obviously there's a whole load of stuff you can do in the book about this, but she, she sort of talked about it in terms of, you know, grief isn't the price we pay for love. It is love. You know, you, grief is a, is a, is a loving yeah, process. Yeah, it's that emotion, isn't it? Yeah. And then with the, um, you know, with the twins going, you know, she says you're going to gain them back in different ways. You know, it, it's a stage, it's a transition. And this phase of life is over, but the next will come. And I, I like this as well. She talks about grief. Grief is love bleeding, a measure of your love for your children. So I thought that was that was quite nice. Well, all change is painful, isn't it? Mm. You can't avoid it. And we, we, you know, we just have to accept that going through it is what we is the pain of it mm. is is the well it's the hopeful as well isn't it mm-hmm. and in midlife I think we sort of lose our identity a little bit so we're particularly wobbly when this yes this emptiness situation occurs yeah. and also I think we can you know you become a new person because everything is changing your body changes your your mental capacity changes mm-hmm. and it, I found it slightly frightening and bewildering so taking yes. a little moment to any of these tools is really helpful, yeah well John calls that this kind of st- Stage, the not knowing phase and she calls she says it's an absolute necessary stage you know if you're kind of at that point where you're saying who am I what am I doing who am I for what do I want and you don't know the answers to those questions you are absolutely not alone midlife is a prime time to be having these questions but she says you need to surrender to the not knowing because that's the only way you're going to create space for the knowing to appear yeah so this idea you know and I certainly did this when I left you know Marie Claire and the magazine world right right what's next what's next what's next and and you know there was no space there was no time and and actually COVID etc meant that I did have that time I wasn't planning it but I think we do have to kind of bear that in mind it's the liminal space yes I think they refer exactly. to it don't they space we had a really interesting post in our Facebook group from mm. a member we've got a private Facebook group you may want to join and uh, somebody said she felt like she was trapped in a life that she didn't design for herself Mm. because I think often in our teenage years we fall into where we're going to go after university Mm. and we're suddenly there and then we hit a time when we take a moment to look back and think hold on a minute I didn't make those decisions consciously this it all just happened and then family happened or didn't happen or I chose to have not to have and I'm in all this place without you know now I could perhaps consciously decide and I know a lot of women feel a bit stuck don't yeah, they I mean a bit you know, of a, what have I done yes exactly and she I, she was particularly interesting on this Donna because she says that if you get to the midlife years without doing any inner exploration you will suffer and you can end up feeling like this so if you've never done any kind of self-reflection self-help therapy any kind of process like that you you can kind of unravel a bit in this yeah. midlife stage but obviously it's not too late at all ever to do never this. too work and it wouldn't take that long and I would say that the book is a really good starting point and she talks about she kind of splits life into two phases and she says phase one is the ego stage where all the outward things are important your car your family your job the kind of outside the things outside of us that create our life okay that's what's kind of important to us and we spend a lot of time and energy and focus um, on that but phase two and midlife midlife is the point where we start moving into phase two and we start doing this I don't know who I am and inner exploration it starts 
becoming about the inside out living. So it's our inner world that defines us, not what we have on the outside. And I really like that idea. And it, it really resonated with me because she, she now gave her some examples to me. And also there's a brilliant list in the book, actually, in this particular chapter where you can identify which stage you're at. So shall I, shall I ask, shall I throw a few at you? So you can, <laughs> right, ego I'm having led. some hobnob here. Yeah, do, do it, crunch away, it. crumbs, crumbs, crumbs all over the kitchen floor. Right, first phase, ego led. So you possess an inability to be with your feelings. So you find your feelings uncomfortable. You don't know how to deal with them. Well, I'm just going to interrupt and say that's that's what we all do because yeah. we're so manic. But, you know, exactly. I was so busy for all of my career and then I have four children. <laughs> Yeah. So I really wasn't dealing with my feelings because I didn't have a minute to think about them. No, exactly. You have a strong need to be right. This is something that I am finally moving away from. <laughs> Being Miss Bossy Boots, always having to be right about everything. I'm like, no, that doesn't matter anymore. It really doesn't. So that's one that in the ego. Um, you're still blaming your parents for the past. Saying nothing. Saying laughing at that. And you have a strong desire to be liked and approved of. Oh, don't I mean, there's that. a no, but there's a longer list which you might you might have. I mean, I found I had some of the things on the first phase and some of the things on the second phase. Yeah. But obviously, you want to start moving to the second phase. And the second phase, which is your spirit-led part of your life, um, you view your body and your life as a miracle, which I oh, love. Yes, yeah. that's true indeed. You have less need to be seen and heard. No, I need to you almost do. Well, audience is, yes, almost all the time about at you, any your, given point of the day or night. Your spirit-led life is going to be a bit challenging. I think you need less stuff and have the desire to declutter and minimise. I really feel true. like that. I want to get rid of it all. I want get it all of out of my wardrobe, all out of everything. Yeah. yeah, and this is something Donna herself did and, you know, changed her life. And you allow all your feelings the space to be felt, which I thought was really nice. I think so, that's terrifying. Oh, well, you see, you need to do the work. You need to do the book. I do, yeah. You need to do it. Yeah, exactly. And then um, she talks about then that there can be a, a sort of a missing piece, a piece missing, which is a higher consciousness finding a deeper meaning. And that piece comes in this phase of life as well. A little bit sort of spirituality without being religious, I would say. Or you can be religious, well, of course, if that works for you. Yes, of course. I've been doing some research for the book I'm writing on this, and mm -hmm. there is a huge amount of science and proper research with people who are over 60, who mm -hmm. say that they are much more spiritual, pe mm -hmm. women particularly who haven't thought that way in the past. So it's documented, this spiritual feeling. I mean, it sounds a bit woo-woo when we talk about it now in advance of it happening, but it is, it is something that happens. There's a much more of a sense of, even if you are in difficult circumstances, mm -hmm. I know they're going to be difficult and I can deal with it and I feel more spiritual about it almost a religious awakening yes as well. it is yeah it mm. is it's, it's, so I I mean this all really resonated with me I absolutely loved it and actually Donna um, has a website called deepeningintolife.com which is really worth having a look and she sort of runs specific courses she's got one coming up called becoming an elder because she yeah. talks about you know after midlife you're in your elder phase and this sort of wisdom and she's doing this three-day workshop all about turning your wounds into wisdom and I I just really love it so it's really worth going on there and having a look get into this second phase spirit-led life you can do some of that through the work that she's doing on the website as well and of course the book 
I know a lot of women will be listening to this in their kind of late 30s, maybe early 40s, thinking, oh, my God. So just talking about yourself all the time, thinking about yourself all the time. Mm. You know, there's other things going on. I think that's a really mistaken way to view things like this. After all the research I've done, I've done a lot of scientific research into it as well. This stage of life and the next one coming is so, so important. It's Mm. where all the big decisions are made. It's where you set the ground for your happiness. So it really is worth stepping back, stopping. Mm -hmm. and taking the time to do something like this even though if every bone in your body is quite cynical about it yeah it's really really helpful I've started you know we've started to do it through the Mm. podcast and I started to do it with friends I've interviewed those therapists you just take deal with the moments in this void as it were between Mm. one and two it's a really important thing to do well those are very wise words from my wise elder friend Hobnob So it's nostalgia noodle time and we're doing guess the year. Last week you introduced a prop. So obviously I have to introduce a prop this time. So here you are. I'm handing something incredibly precious to you. Would you like to have a look at it and then (laughs) describe it? Well, thank you very much for this, Trish. It's a medal with a little green gingham thing to put around your neck of some of a lady. Looks like shot put. (laughs) <laughs> to me Trish this is a lady doing shot put what is this is. about for God's so, sake I may have mentioned this many moons ago on the podcast yes. but this is my um winning the sports day shot put competition little old yes. me didn't want to do running uh didn't want to do anything so uh they didn't have netball <laughs> on sports day so I was like right I'll just do shot put and um shot put that's what you chose is it I won, but I want you to guess the year that I won this medal in, the shot put year. So I'm going to give you some clues. Now, I know you're a bit sensitive around this and you don't like my clues. I'm sort of going to start on a sporting theme. Keep on a sporting theme. Oh, go on then. Is that going to upset you? I only know swimming. I don't know any other sports. (laughs) Okay, well, you might know this I'm ready for it. I'm going to start with a a swimming one. It was the Moscow Olympics in which about 82 countries boycotted the Games, but Great Britain and Northern Ireland didn't, which is quite surprising. And I didn't know this, but apparently Margaret Thatcher was the Prime Minister, there's another clue, and she wanted to boycott it, and the British Olympic Association wouldn't. And she didn't have any power to stop them. Isn't that surprising? Someone defied Margaret Thatcher. Exactly, exactly. Well, how easy was it to do that? Why weren't more oh, of no. us doing that? Okay, but we um, had quite I'm a lot understand- of winners. Shall, shall I tell you some of the winners or do you want to guess straight away? Well, I mean, we would have a lot of winners if 82 <laughs> countries decided not to go. I mean, even you'd win the shot put there. Yes, probably, exactly. Then, wouldn't you? That would have been it. Got an Olympic. Imagine if you had just handed me a gold Olympic Oh, I know. Wouldn't that be the best? Trish. <laughs> Um, I think 1981. Oh, you're so close. You're so close. But I'm going to give you some names of these sporting Do it. legends. Sebastian Coe, Steve Ovet. Do you remember that? The eight Lord Sebastian Coe, as he is now, is he? Uh, Daley Thompson. Oh, I, I think there's a... Thompson, does he yeah. do the shot put in the decathlon or is it a discus throw? I can't remember. And swimming, bald swimming legend. Duncan Goodhue. Duncan Goodhue. There you go. That doesn't help, um, does it? Not helping me on the old year front. No, shall um, I tell what, you some things that are Talk aren't... about other sports. Yes, not Other Olympic, sports? Moscow other sports, Olympics. right. Wimbledon men's final. Bjorn oh, you know I don't like tennis. Beat John McEnroe. Oh. That's not going to help, though, is it? 1980? Yes! You did it! <gasps> 
Yay. And you didn't have to do any maths. No. Can I do my Bjorn Borg name drop now then? Oh, go on then. Yes. <laughs> Is it to do with his pants? No, I've not done anything with Bjorn Borg's pants. He's got pants, hasn't he? He's pants. No, I know. I have bought them though for my son. Mm. They're very good actually. Mm. Um, I was, when I first started on freelance on the Sunday Mirror, I was an yes. undercover reporter Ooh. as a tennis driver because... You I mean, drove the tennis stars. Well, it's yes. So this is this combines all things, all manner of wrong. Because obviously, yes. as you know, Trish, I am a terrible driver. Yes, yes. Um, putting the the lives at risk of these superstar tennis players, and they players. should never. I mean, they only sent young women of the hmm. certain type oh, to be interviewed for these things. Oh, no. And um, I just thought I'll just go and drive, and you had to listen to get gossip. I mean, this just wouldn't be allowed now. I mean, no. Thankfully, we are in a better time. And I did drive Bjorn Borg, actually. You drove Bjorn Borg? Yes, but more importantly, before picking him up, I was allowed to go and watch them backstage practising. Yes. And it was quite amazing watching. I mean, he was so young. I think he must have been 19. But, so did the, the, the tennis people knew that you were an imposter? No, I was undercover you... as an actual driver. Yeah, I had to learn the A to Z and I had to drive around London. to do that anymore. Surely not. I bet you didn't <laughs> get massive, those any cars. dirt on Bjorn. Very clean living Swede. Nothing, I nothing. Yes. No. But yes. Um, I did go to a nightclub with, what's that other one, Pat? Somebody. Oh, rather. Pat Cash. That's it, yeah. Naughty Australian. I have no more to say on this, but I'm glad <laughs> I've just won. <laughs> You did. You, you got noodle. it right. You got a nostalgia noodle right. Well done, you. But you're not taking my medal home with you. You do know No. That. I'm going to put it on Margot later. Well, that brings us to the end of this week's in-person, in-my-kitchen postcards from midlife. And look, look who's just come to see you in the nick of time. You can say it. Uh, Margot is <laughs> here. She's very hot. I think her little brain is boiling under all that fur and in all this heat. This is just an outfit she's wearing, Trish. <laughs> I've told you this before. She is contacting the mothership as we speak, saying, we'll take the younger one. Oh, that's, that's me. That's you, yeah. <laughs> and experiment on her giant yes. brain. That's yes. what she's saying. I think she is. Anyway, look, she's leaving. She's not interested Hi, in you. She's as interested in you as you are in her. She's planning something. I'll check what she's done in my handbag in a minute. Yeah, you better do that. Anyway, anyway, new episodes of Postcards from Midlife are available to listen to every Sunday on your podcast provider. And we would really appreciate it if you can make sure to download your episodes so they count on our listener numbers. And if you could rate and review us too, that would be marvellous. And please tell your friends about us. We want as many women as possible to join our midlife conversation. And that's what our private Facebook group is all about. So if you're not a member, do come over and join the chat there. Yes, and you can use it to post any feedback on the topics we discuss. We have great competitions, often with the books that we feature on the show, and you can send suggestions for things that you'd like to hear talked about or celebrities and experts you'd love to hear interviewed. And you can email us your midlife milestones and magic moments to hello at postcardsfrommidlife.com or pop a little message on the Instagram. Goodbye. Bye. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.